Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. This week our focus is economic growth. Wouldn't it be nice to have some? We're asking why we're grinding to a halt in Australia while the US is going gangbusters. Might that have something to do with the policies implemented by the respective governments? Uh, We have a special guest from the US here to talk to us about that and give us some of the background. Uh, We'll be focusing on red tape and tax cuts and such matters. And then we will still have our books and cultures segment. Uh, We have Tyler Cowan's so-called love letter to big business, which I'll be talking about. We have the new Steven Soderbergh movie, The Laundromat, a classic work of sci-fi by Neil Stevenson, a very relevant book called Why Australia Prospered, The Shifting Sources of Economic Growth, uh, and much else besides. I'm Scott Hargraves, editor of the IPA Review, joined as always by my co-host from RMIT University, Dr Chris Berg. G'day, Scott. Today, our Director of Policy, Daniel Wild. Director of Research usually, but uh, today I'll take on the policy <laughs> role, no problems. I've got policy on the brain. <laughs> Director of Research, Daniel same. Wild. It's all the same. Policy, policy outcomes, that's what we want. Uh, and it is my great pleasure to welcome our special guest. Uh, his title is Director of Policy Analytics at the Mercatus Centre, which is a Washington-based think tank affiliated with George Mason University, and it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Patrick McLaughlin. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. It's great to have you in Australia as a guest of this podcast, as a guest of the IPA, and uh, look forward to hearing more about uh, what you'll be doing this week in Australia. Don't forget this podcast is brought to you by the IPA. If you're not already supported, please do go to ipa.org.au join or donate and if you're listening to us on an app this is your chance to give us a five star rating dr berg talk to us about red tape for a start sure please. i'd be delighted to how long do you have um so uh it's it's really exciting to have um patrick in australia because um uh, the work that he's doing, which I'll ask Patrick to explain in a moment, but I'll give a bit of context. Um, we've gone through cycles of red tape and deregulation reform in this country um, for the better part of three decades now. Um, uh, we obviously had the deregulation movement, but uh, since the deregulation movement of the 70s and 80s, we've realised that what's really slowing down the economy seems to be this um, accumulation of small Um, restrictions on economic um, uh, activity. So minor things or things that look minor, but in fact make it really hard to build mines, to build buildings, to start businesses and and those sort of things. So governments figured this out um, about two decades ago and they started trying to chip away at the built up regulations, but they found it really hard to do. In part because it's really hard to figure out what you have done. How do you cut red tape when you don't know how to measure the burden of red tape. So governments have tried to figure out different ways to do that and um, uh, and the Australian government for a long time has been making guesstimates about how much red tape costs the economy based on how long it takes to fill out forms and so forth. But that has some serious problems and I think we've seen how um, the vagueness of those sort of measures means it's really hard to hold those governments to account which is why we're really interested in Patrick's project. So Patrick's project at the Mercatus Institute is called Reg Mercatus Center is called Reg Data and I'd love to uh, hear you explain to our listeners exactly what that is. Well, thanks. That's a really good build up to it because the same sort of problems have been occurring in the United States for decades as well in the sense that going all the way back to the Jimmy Carter Jimmy Carter years in the late 1970s every president in the US has said we've got too much regulation, there's too much red tape. I'm going to fix it. And that happened time after time, and we didn't see the effect of it. But there was still this lingering suspicion, regulation, this buildup of regulation. Everyone knows it's been building up over time, and everyone suspected that it's been causing the economy to do worse. We just couldn't measure it. Um, Well, I guess we thought we could measure it, but we were failing to measure it. There were many governments that claimed they had measured it. So what we did with reg data at Mercatus uh, was to actually measure it. Uh, it was <laughs> yeah. What a novel idea. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but it's, it sounds really simple when I put it this way. It's a simple exercise in measurement, and that has made all the difference in terms of knowing how much regulation there is, who's creating it, and who's being affected by it, which parts of the economy are being affected by it. So, um, Scott, in your introduction, you called me the director of policy analytics at Mercatus, Uh, Policy analytics is really what we've been doing. We've been using the tools of uh, machine learning and text analytics, advanced analytics, if you will, to go through the text of policies, in this case regulations, to figure out 
measure different dimensions of them. And the first one was just the quantity, the sheer quantity of regulation in the U.S. Um, now we've gone to Australia and Canada and other jurisdictions, but it started in the U.S. And let me just stop this introduction with some, some numbers. So we went through the roughly 185,000 pages of regulation on the books in the U.S. and said, just what is this stuff? How, how can we measure this stuff? Well, what is regulation? Regulation by design is prohibiting you from doing stuff or obligating you to, to do stuff. That's what regulations are, right? Interventions that constrain your choice set. So we said, let's count those up. Let's count up all of the obligations and prohibitions that are created by regulation. And we found that regulation so in the United States... But your starting point was 185,000 pages, just to start with. Is that what you said? That's right, yes. And then, so, I mean, we used to do that thing. I mean, tr even Trump's done this where, you know, you, you print them after out. After I did it, I have to say. Yeah, yeah, Berg did it, Berg did it. There's a famous <laughs> photo of Berg somewhere. Well, have you seen my video? With a stack, with a stack of papers that yeah. high. And then Donald Trump did it. And so, it's like, yeah. so we used to print them <laughs> out. Look, we, you know, we'd, 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 we'd print them out and we'd, we'd stand next to it and say, right. oh, my God, look at, look at how high this is. And then I guess, I don't know what happened to that paper after that. Hopefully it was recycled and, and sent to a good home. Um, but you actually did something with that stack of paper. You actually fed it through the machine, if you like, and, and right. analyzed it. Yeah, and um, and by the way, I once did stack up all those books, 185,000 <laughs> pages, and and we we made a video of this. Fast forward one more time to today. point the the wall of books almost fell on me which makes me the only person probably that can make the literal claim that I was almost crushed by regulation <laughs> but the uh, we analyzed the content of them so we didn't want to just count pages we wanted to know like I said prohibitions and obligations we found that there's over a million prohibitions and obligations in regulatory text just at the federal level in the United States and that was just kind of Amazing, right? Yeah. Um, you know, you, you, your introduction to red tape was this sort of all these small little effects that are building up. This is not a death by a thousand cuts effect. This is a death by a million cuts. Mm -hmm. So, so once you've got that um, that new data, what what can and maybe we'll bring Dan in here. So, so once we know how much regulation there is, what can we do in response? Well, there's a few a few things. One of the strategies that's been used, which is a fairly blunt type of tool but it's a one in x out type of approach so you have for every new uh, restriction that you bring in you got to get rid of two you got to get rid of five existing ones that are there i know they did that in in british columbia the province in canada um, you can also just do that with rules as well themselves rather than having to do restrictions so the main reason why that is a good tool is because it places a binding constraint on the bureaucracy so it's not a perfect tool it's not a nuanced tool it's not all the answers but it does mean that there needs to be some serious evaluation given to the value of what you're bringing in because you have to take two things out. And I think the main lesson from British Columbia, which really pioneered this from 2001 to 2015, was the longer you go, the better it is. So they only got a very small reduction to their red tape burden in the first year, but after three years, they had about a one-third reduction to their total uh, regulatory burden using this one-in, X-out approach with reg data. So that seems to be the most promising approach. And also, the benefit is because it's a set-and-forget tool. So you can run it in the bureaucracy. Um, it can go on a bipartisan approach. It doesn't really matter who's in government. You don't necessarily need... You need leadership to set it up, but you don't necessarily need leadership to keep it going. It just sits in the bureaucracy and, and can keep it, running. It just becomes one of the things they're measured against. It becomes one of the things, and you embed it in the policy process. So you have processes already... Um, that you're required to undertake in the bureaucracy when you're introducing new rules, uh, regulation impact analysis being one such example. Now, um, I would argue that that particular tool is not very effective at um, reducing regulation, but it is still a tool that's already embedded in the policymaking process. So you can put this uh, one into out approach into that process as an example. So it's easy to embed within the existing bureaucratic structure. So Patrick, um, uh, Dan's raised British Columbia and, and British Columbia was really the first example of this being used? Yeah, so it's, I, I got to correct a couple of things. Um, British Columbia did start this in 2001, and their approach was very similar to reg data, but it wasn't reg data. Reg data didn't exist until 2012. So what British Columbia did was they had a, um, an army of interns basically go through all its regulations mm -hmm. and, and related documents. So they were looking at 
statutes, regulations, guidance documents, forms that businesses might have to fill out, and counting up all of the, what they call them, requirements. So what are all the actions that are required in all these things? They weren't looking at prohibitions like reg data does. But anyway, you, your, your other facts were right. They, between 2001 and 2004, they cut over a third of those requirements. Um, and they did it by just implementing a simple, perhaps blunt approach. But the, the merits of it is it's comprehensive, especially in British Columbia, where they looked across all documents, not just a regulation. Comprehensive, objective, and, and replicable. And I think those are, I guess another word for replicable would be transparent. Mm. Hmm. So once you have some sort of... Um, metric that anyone can see and replicate, then you can't hide behind, well, we're, we're, an, we're analyzing the numbers internally, or we have all these regulatory impact analyses that tell us that our decisions are correct. No, there's no way to game this, really. A requirement is a requirement, and anyone's count's going to mm. stand up. So the reg data is, is the, the main difference is it's automated. Right. As opposed to, so in British Columbia, they had people basically doing it, yeah. and they had slightly different terminology that was Used. That's basically and, it. And yeah. reg data is an automated tool that basically right. expedites that. They were totally independent of each other. Uh, yeah. When reg data was started in 2012, I didn't know about British Columbia at all. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, it turned out to be very similar. British right. Columbia is a fascinating place to do it because, um, and I may have talked about this on the podcast before, I can't remember, but um, but Canada as a comparison to Australia is, is a really important one because um, uh, it's not well recognized in either Australia or Canada how similar the two countries are, their political system is virtually identical their uh, economy is near identical the population size is near identical they're focused on mining they've got a significant indigenous population where we are hot they are cold um uh, it, it, almost everything that they do we can do as well the difference unfortunately with canada is that their federalist system actually works oh, ours, yeah. <laughs> ours ours doesn't and we've referred all our powers up to canberra for interesting um historical reasons so we need some french we, we need we need what we need i've always said this what we need in australia is a bunch of angry french people who don't want to give power to the well, we almost had government. that with North Queens. If North Queensland had it been its own state, or New Zealand, there's so or many New options to. But anyway, so that <laughs> this is a side point. <laughs> um, uh, but it's a really interesting comparison. And uh, how how did you find? So um, I was talking to. Um, Darcy Allen and Aaron Lane, who who um, helped build up some of the Australian data on 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 this project. And how did you find making the comparison between um, uh, the American system that you wrote it for and um, the Australian, um, obviously quite different legislative and legal framework? It was a lot harder in Australia, which is surprising. There's a lot less regulation in total. There are fewer pages, I should say, of of regulations to go through, um, although we are finding more regulations now than we found the initial time for, for Reg Data Australia. We just keep them hidden. <laughs> yep. For better or worse, that <laughs> the case. It's, well, the way, we're, we're taking these documents off of websites, and how the website is built is it's usually you know outsourced to some IT company or some other group that has nothing to do with writing the regulations yeah. themselves. In the so early 1990s, when it yeah, was last yeah. 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 So there's yeah. some JavaScript involved in the <laughs> in the old uh, version. And Australia recently updated their website, which is how we found some of the new documents. But anyway, going back to your question, it was hard to get Australia's documents just all corralled, all gathered. And a takeaway from that is, I think. When you have a lot more regulations, you tend to organize them better, better or worse. I mean, and maybe that predicts that Australia's regulations will get better organized as the uh, the volume grows. I well, don't that, know. well, that is, that is the kind of focus we want to put put on it, and um, that's certainly uh, what we're referring to. The, the paper that Patrick is referring to uh, is the Reg Data Australia. Uh, it's a working paper from the Makeda Centre. Uh, co-authored, uh, it's Patrick and also uh, Professor Jason Potts from RMIT University and Oliver Shirouf. Shirouf. Shirouf, a colleague of yours. He I, was at Mercatus when we did this, yeah. He's yeah. now moved on. He's working inside the government these days. Oh, the poor poor man. Um, <laughs> but hopefully achieving some change. Uh, but this was, yes, the first uh, Commonwealth-level um, analysis of uh, the regulatory restrictions using the reg data tool. And, and of course, we have been talking about states, and this is uh, a reform process, a technology uh, that can be uh, a applied either at the, at the federal level 
or at the state level or provinces in, in Canada. And that's certainly something that we're looking forward to you, uh, talking about in, in Australia. So this is, this is now a public document, but we're also, um, there's some work going on uh, currently for the states as well. So, yeah. Uh, well, uh, yeah, sorry. sorry so, on, I mean, it's just software, right? Reg data is is programs that we've developed that can be applied to any any document, really, and we can we can quantify different dimensions of it. Now, whether you can compare them, whether it's an apples to apples comparison to say, here's all the restrictions in Australia, here's all the restrictions in the U.S., that you have to be a little bit careful about. But the approach has been for us: look at ways that the end user is affected by law. That's what we want to get at. How, what are the prohibitions and obligations that affect you as an individual or you as a business? Whether those come out of regulations or out of statutes or out of other documents, I don't really care. I want to just see all of the effects to the end user that are created by law. And in that sense, I think what, we're, what we've done in Australia, we, we looked at legislation as well as regulation here, whereas in the US we looked just at regulation. And the logic there is those are the documents that affect the end user. Yeah, so let, let's talk about the US then. Um, there's recently been some some analysis, uh, as I as I mentioned at the top of the show, the uh, the headline numbers in uh, the US are quite remarkable in terms of I think unemployment has reached a a 60 year low. Um, I'm not sure of the current growth rate, but it's a number with a three in front of it, whereas I think our current rate annualised is a number with a one in front of it. Um, that's that's a significant difference, I think, in anyone's language and. Um, and, and Daniel, you've actually been having a look at um, uh, the red tape reduction program that the uh, the White House put in place, and and how that's mapped, to, or how that's actually driven some of those economic outcomes. Yeah, that's right. I've got a, a forthcoming paper that analyses what the Trump administration has been doing with its red tape reduction agenda. Um, the 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 short answer is it's hard to tell, as it always is, uh, what exactly <laughs> is going on. Um, yeah, so I wish I could have a more of a, a thorough that answer. Is a, but that is real cut through there. That's real, that's real research cut through. But you know, I, can't lie, I can't lie to you guys. I can't lie to you guys because I can't get anything past you. But the, because what happened was basically Trump came in, uh, big emphasis on uh, cutting taxes, uh, energy sector liberalisation and red tape deregulation. I think he said he wanted to cut regulation by 75%. Right, right. So I don't, I don't know whether he's quite got there yet, but he, he's got hopefully um, so five six ambition. more years, five, five more years maybe. <laughs> So we'll see how he goes. But really the main thing was a one-in-two-out approach to cutting red tape. That was the big uh, big policy that he had in place. Um, the headline is that it works, so we should do it here. Uh, the reason why it works is, as I discussed before, puts the constraint on the bureaucracy to actually look at what they're doing. The caveat is that they then have what's called an executive order, which the equivalent for us would be sort of an edict from the Prime Minister's office, uh, which sort of truncated... Can, can you imagine? <laughs> it sort of truncated the... Uh, ambit of the one in two out policy to only include major regulations which are regulations of a hundred million dollar impact or more so when you look at that it's actually had well, a, only on the one inside on, on yeah uh, and, but the they two can out could be any, any kind of regulation that's right so, oh, they, they so can, only if it's big on the way out but you can get what a piddly yeah, little thing you and want. yeah <laughs> that's right but the qualifier was net zero cost right, right. so so, so the, if it's big on the one side oh, you have to find equally it, big yeah, on, yeah. The, yeah. on the yeah so outside. it's a net zero proviso which is quite good i mean i would prefer to have a net reduction of X, but nonetheless, net zero cost is okay. Uh, there's been a big slowdown to the introduction of major new regulations, both uh, economy-wide right. um, and sector-specific uh, major new regulations. Uh, if we look at the, we're talking about regulatory restrictionist clauses, it's, uh, I believe, Mercatus put out a, uh, some analysis saying there was the fewest new restrictions added in Trump's first year compared to any other administration going back and including Carter in 1977. Um, the total pages of uh, new uh, legislation introduced in Trump's first year was um, a significant reduction on the Obama year and the lowest, uh, sorry, the biggest cut annually on record. I think records go back to the 1930s. So if we look at this and we take it as a whole, um, what we can confidently say there's been a marketed slowdown in the introduction of new regulation. There's been some cuts to um, some big regulatory items and there has been um, a good flow through uh, into the economy when you talk about um, the economic growth figures. There's also been an uptick to private sector business investment, which is very important, highest level since 2007 as a percentage of GDP. 
Um, and also manufacturing sector has been about 400,000 net jobs created in the manufacturing sector since the end of 2016. Now, I'm not saying that's all because of red tape. There's, there's the tax cuts and the energy side of things and there's general economic conditions that are independent of, of government. But uh, it's an important tool in the toolkit. And the thing that really drove it, I think, was Trump's vision and leadership. He was really pushing this as something that he wanted to do uh, along with tax cuts as a part of his presidency. So it's been a, it's been a successful agenda. Patrick, how should we expect the deregulation to show up in the economy? So um, should we expect it in uh, – uh, should we be looking in the aggregate growth statistics? Should we be looking at, at business um, startups? How, how, how do you see the benefits of this sort of um, red tape reduction program? So I think you can take – have two lenses here. that You can zoom in on the effects of specific deregulatory actions. Um, so – the obligations that were created by previously existing regulations and removing those. And you can sometimes instantly see changes in, in prices and services because those constraints are lifted within that specific industry. But then in the more macro sense, once you zoom out a bit, I think what you have to look at where the long run effects will be is how investment choices are made. It's, it's in the long run, the drivers of growth are those things that increase productivity. And a main driver of productivity gains are investments in things like R&D, but also just expansion of businesses, new machinery, uh, and the like, business investment. Uh, you know, growth doesn't happen by accident. Mm. It's, it's a deliberate choice. Um, and when, when businesses are freed up from complying with red tape, especially if those compliance are just costs that don't lead to necessarily benefits, then they can turn and take that those funds, those resources, and allocate them to whatever they would have been doing otherwise, which often is investment in things that drive productivity. So that's that's sort of the macro view. That's the thing you should look for: changes in investment. I'll that's such what, an important. So I'll just yeah, make one comment. Such an important point because the debate that's going on here in Australia right now is about um, you know consumption-led growth. That's that's basically the entire economic establishment in Treasury. Just there buy is, more at Woolworths, and then but, yeah, the but also using <laughs> debt to do it. It works forever, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean we have the second <laughs> highest debt to GDP ratio in the developed well behind Switzerland and both public and private debt is at <coughs> records and the basic the only view coming out of the economic establishment is you need to borrow more and spend more to have a consumption-led boom now you might get some short-term economic growth from doing that but that's not a long-term path to prosperity and the point that we've been trying to make both in red tape and elsewhere is you've got to expand the supply side of the economy and you do that in order to attract more investment which leads to you know bigger capital stock more productivity so that's such an important point for us to keep on making that the only way we're going to get long-term improvements to wealth is if we expand, funnily enough, the ability of the economy to generate wealth. I'll tell you what I think is one of the unsung um, issues with over-regulation. It's that the harm is actually a dynamic harm. It's not just a harm to growth or individual um, businesses. It's what happens when you build up all this red tape, you know, the, the million million um, restrictions or what have you. Um, it just makes the economy a lot less flexible. It fixes it into certain patterns. It makes it harder to adapt and reallocate resources in a crisis. Because if you think about it this way, if, if we all lost our jobs tomorrow, if um, the economy went down and, and we lost our jobs and um, from, you know, the IPA or RMIT or Mercatus um, uh, had to say goodbye, we... If we're unable to get a new job, that's going to be the problem. And mm. so you've got to be thinking about how easy it is to hire people who have been put onto the labour market suddenly. If um, if suddenly a area, a city is it goes into decline, say Detroit or a, a Rust Belt city goes into decline, how easy it is it for firms who no longer can successfully operate in that city to build in a new city, to to build a new warehouse, to build a new factory. So so I reckon the big problem that we have is it's actually very hard to measure but it's the fact that too much red tape makes us particularly unadaptable to sudden changes recessions natural disasters whatever it is just sudden changes you know technological shocks all that right it changes thing. on the positive side too it's not just yeah recessions yeah. but it's also the new the ideas invention. And, yeah new yeah. ideas you know platforms that let um contractors turn up and drive for you instead of a taxi driver. That's a nice way of saying I had sort of an apocalyptic way of describing that. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, there's regulations on the books in the U.S. Uh, affecting railroads, railways, right? Um, these old rules, it's, it's an old industry, and these rules that require a person to physically be out on the tracks with a, basically a yardstick, you know, a ruler, and, and measure the distance between these two, the two tracks, the two metal uh, tracks. And 
it's not a very effective way of... Presumably uh, has to run very fast in front of the train to, to do this. <laughs> and presumably they're shut down the train for that segment oh, that good, he's operating okay. on, although sometimes <laughs> accidents does. do happen. Um, but the point is, you know, there's machines that can do this much better than, than people. But the rules still say people have to be out there using a ruler and, and measuring the distance between the two tracks. And it's just the... No one really is arguing that the machine couldn't do a better job. It's just the the stasis of regulation is it's always there. Yeah. It's it's the it's the lack of inertia. It's it's so difficult to change the the, the status quo once something is ensconced in regulation, even when new technology offers a better solution. And I think what sorry, Chris, I just want to follow up on Patrick's point because that's that's exactly the kind of story that. Um, that we hear from business, but uh, Australian business has been, uh, I think, unable to grapple with the problem at, at the at the overall level because um, whenever we talk to people in business, they they have uh, anecdotes for their industry, yeah. um, uh, which you know the things that drive them mad. It's pretty well, and individuals for that matter. You can ask any any citizen, you know, what are the things that drive you mad, and they'll be able to tell you about um, red tape. Um, but what one of two things happens. Either maybe somehow some political focus comes on that one rule and that one rule gets fixed. Um, and, and then the, the people agitating for it go away. Go the, away. Uh, regulations fix as far as I'm concerned, so I don't need to be focused on this anymore. That's right. The whole thing disappears or, or there's conversations about it. Nothing happens at all because what's, what's been lacking is a sustained ability to reform this. And, and of course, one of the things is the, the bureaucracy has uh, we have a permanent bureaucracy in Australia, unlike uh, the US. We have uh, the parliament, you know, an independent public service. And the first uh, thing you, you will see in any of these discussions is complete inertia. They're not necessarily there to help this agenda at all. It's not. It's not just that it's not in their interest. It's just their state of being is to keep doing what the. That's what bureaucracies do. They keep things running the way they were. I once had a um, a grad student who was doing his writing his thesis under me, and uh, he showed up in my office one day, and he said, I've got it. I've, I've got the title for my paper, for my thesis. I said, all right, let's hear it. He said, regulators regulate. Haters going to hate regulators. Exactly, regulate. yeah. So uh, I disagree and, with that. It, it, it's actually a great insight. It's, 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 it's saying what you just said. Uh, the, the, the bureaucracies were formed with a mission, and the people that work there have self-selected into the bureaucracies to help f fulfill that mission. And the tool that they have, unless there's a one-in, two-out, or some other sort of regulatory budget implemented, the tools that they have is, is one. It's make more regulations. This is why the old rules uh, affecting how railroad inspections occur are still there, because there's no incentive to go back and update that, the incentive is all make new regulations that will win new battles in the minds of the regulators. So how does reg data address that? The, the, you know, we've talked about reg data as an analytical tool, but it is also the basis of a, a tool for change. So how, how does it address that bureaucratic dynamic? So it, it's really in the implementation of a regulatory budget is how the, the, the dynamic changes. Reg data is just a tool for measurement. And you could... You know, you can still continue gaining weight even if you know you're overweight, right? And you step on a scale and you see that the number is increasing every day. It doesn't change unless you go on a diet. Uh, so reg data is the scale, but the diet part, that is a separate implementation. We've seen that start to be implemented. So as uh, Dan already talked about in the U.S. with uh, the Trump two-for-one regulatory budget, uh, with the British Columbia regulatory budget, but it does require that second element, some sort of uh, some sort of tool that makes regulators have to go back and get rid of existing regulation in order to be able to make new regulation. It's a really powerful tool from a institutional perspective because we keep trying to think of um, ways that we can formalise or make permanent or at least make concrete um, deregulation approaches. And it's not just... And, and the problem that we've had is certainly the case in, in Australia and I, I believe in the United States, that you get a government and the government comes in and it almost always in Australia comes in with a promise to have a deregulation agenda. And I was always really struck by Australia's first deregulation minister. Minister of deregulation was Lindsay Tanner in the Rudd 
government, and that was not the most deregulatory government um, we've ever had by any stretch what, what of the imagination. What year was that for, for the so American So that was 2007, um, uh, and the Rudd government was a Labor government. Um, and and Kevin Rudd came in and said, you know, the, we are wildly overregulated. The Howard government has overregulated our economy, and they launched this new deregulation minister and it went almost nowhere, which you, know, which, you know, was predictable. But what we need is institutional settings that mean outside that first flurry of enthusiasm, it will stick. And um, building those sorts of tools or building um, references to those tools into the parliamentary process, into committee hearing processes, you know, what is the regulatory impact of each new legislation in a formal reg data sense. That's that's how we can make change. It will always require, as Dan's pointed out, it will always require a degree of political leadership, which the Trump administration has offered, and um, uh, and various other state governments and um, uh, like British Columbia have offered as well. But but we're trying to build in new rules into the system that make the system better in the long term. I like the idea of the um, uh, the. The diet, if you like, because it's it's saying to the agencies, which are the ultimate source of all of these rules, um, we just want you to lose weight. And look, we're not going to tell you whether it's the the keto diet or 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 the or the two five or 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 the eighteen six or what. It's just you f- you figure it out. But but we will watch. But we will watch. <laughs> and it is it is time you get on with it. You know, sort of and and. Like, like telling anyone they've got to lose weight, the initial reaction is perhaps resistance and then ultimately over time they start to see some rewards and they, they can actually get on board. Yeah, that's what we see uh, time after time. I mean, for the handful of times we've seen reg- regulatory budgets implemented, that is, um, you know, the, the story starts in British Columbia again where there was uh, stories of initial resistance from the rank and file career civil servants, but once they realize that like you say, Scott, they, they're in charge of figuring out where the red tape is. They're in charge of figuring out which regulations aren't working. And once they started cutting those and seeing that the industries they were regulated weren't negatively infected, affected, in fact, and some, some stories are that they, things got safer, things got better uh, in terms of the, the sort of outcomes that the regulators are trying to achieve. Once they saw that, then they really bought into it. Then it became a game of how can we find more red tape to cut because this is fulfilling our mission yeah no and 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 they should win prizes they should be oh and they did competition oh no, they, yeah they, oh, okay. in british columbia and other places too they've they've they they harnessed competition right uh so having one ministry face off against another and the ministries that would cut the most red tape would get these i want golden scissors i think uh, <laughs> i might have the, the color wrong golden or red i don't but scissors yeah and that would that would be their trophy for having cut the most red tape. And we've seen the same sort of thing uh, uh, copied in in other states that have also done some regulatory budgeting. I love that idea. I love that idea, um, Patrick. You are director of policy analytics, and uh, this, the tools that you're using are in the field of big data and artificial intelligence, um, which is just sort of gibberish to me. But um, Berg, you're somewhat interested in these things and might even know what they mean. I, I am. I'm going to ask Patrick to give an explanation of the technical details. But um, uh, I, I thought it would be <laughs> cop that, Patrick. Um, I thought it would be an interesting thing to discuss in uh, given that we've got Patrick here, because of course um, uh, Patrick is working with the machine learning um, uh, system for. Uh, academic work, um, and this just this week there was a big dispute in the democratic debate. In fact, in the United States, between Elizabeth Warren and Andrew Yang, um, Elizabeth Warren believes that there's been huge upheavals in the economy because of trade. Andrew Yang, who is um, a sort of an also ran but a really interesting figure in the Democratic primary, um, believes that automation is going to erode jobs. Hence, he thinks that we need a universal basic income. Uh, you're an academic working in the artificial intelligence space. Why don't we ask with a question first, are robots going to steal the job of hardworking research assistants? Uh, yes. <laughs> yes, they will. But there will be new jobs that the research assistants will fill. So, I mean, it's, it's a dynamic game. I, I think that the, the short view that a robot takes your job or displaces workers is just a very short view. There's hundreds of years of evidence that whenever a new technology displaces workers, those workers find more valuable things to do. But isn't, isn't there something, and I, I agree with you, but I think there's a counter argument that what we're talking about here with the new generation of technologies like artificial intelligence and automation and so forth, 
Um, we're talking about, we're not just building machines, right? Machines that, that make it easier to move things, make it easier to um, produce more stuff quicker. We're, we're talking about a different class of technologies that um, target what we are good at as human beings. We are good at thinking, we are good at um, being creative and entrepreneurial, and some of the technologies that we're inventing now actually can do that. Do you, do you think that this is just more of the, um, uh, the history of machines, or, 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 and you don't buy that there's a s significant step change? There's a significant change, or, or or you're not worried about that, or I think I'm more in the former. Uh, I think I think this is just continuation of technological change that we've seen for for a long time. I don't I don't buy the the notion that AI is somehow all that different from computer programming that we've been doing for decades. Dan, Dan you've been thinking a lot about this. I have been thinking a lot about this, Chris. Um, and it's good <laughs> well, to... I'll set it up, you <laughs> knock it down. <laughs> I've been thinking about it. But yeah. um, it's good to have the positivity. I've, I've, I get a little bit worried about AI and partly that's because I don't know much about the details of it. But partly I, I sort of read around more of the philosophy, you know, the, uh, that underpins some of the people working on this. And you do identify a very strong transhumanist streak in a lot of the, a lot of the people in the tech world. So... Um, and so the, the, the conclusion I sort of reach is that they're not necessarily that a lot of people designing these and writing the algorithms. Are they really concerned about humans or is it just about sort of productive efficiency? So in the past, it was never conceivable that, you know, you go from a, a, a horse to a car. You're not necessarily, as Chris says, you're not necessarily displacing something that's fundamental to being a human because we have a brain. But yeah, then we've got legs too. I mean. We've got legs too, <laughs> but, you know, we've still got to, you can operate with a brain and no legs. <laughs> right, but not the other way around. Sure, you can't go with the legs and no brain. So, what happens when um, they take our brains? Basically, what happens when you have these really highly sophisticated um, automated algorithms and so forth that can do the work that humans, as Chris said, could do? And when that's underpinned by a sort of not necessarily an anti-human philosophy, but certainly one that's indifferent to the future of humanity. Um, and you pick this up in, um, who's the author of uh, uh, Harari, Yuval Harari, mm. who's very big on this. And he's definitely a transhumanist. Like at the end of his book on, um, on Homo sapiens, he just basically says, well, the future is we're not going to have humans. And Singularity. That's, and that's fine. But that's not fine to me. So that's why I get a bit worried <laughs> about this. Um, so what, what is the negative sort of vision of the future that AI displacing humans or replacing humans, at least in our jobs, leads to there's some portion of of the human race that just is not employable right some some underclass if you will that that can't do anything more valuable than what an ai can do and so they're just they're on andrew yang's uh, universal basic income as, yeah. as their alternative see i just don't this is why i don't buy into it because there's that's too valuable to just sit there someone is going to figure out a way some innovation maybe even involving ai that will make those humans be able to contribute in some way. Mm -hmm. I just I don't think that we're going to be that static. That we're not going to figure out a way to take the twenty percent or twenty five percent that's sitting there unemployed and make them be able to create value. I, I think that's a um, incredible insight. I particularly like the idea that um, AI will actually help us work through these interesting challenges. So I've been doing a project at the moment, or we've been doing a project at RMIT in concert with uh, Mancal Economic Foundation, Education Foundation, uh, our friends in Perth, um, called the New Technologies of Freedom. And one of the big focuses that we have in that is the way that we can use these technologies for liberty in, in the case of this particular project. But you know, if you've got dangers from artificial intelligence, then you can use artificial intelligence to counter those dangers. If you've got dangers from technology that violates privacy, then you can use technologies to protect your privacy more and and the more and more I look at this I realize that some of the things that we worry about in AI like um, uh, you know deep fakes so these videos mm -hmm. that um, uh, that that allow you to effectively paste someone else's head on something else to to copy someone's audio signature um, uh, vocal signature I should say that make it seem like they're saying something that they've never said well we can use AI to actually identify which ones are which ones are fraudulent and which ones are true, or at least which ones don't, don't come up with a signature oh, so this, being this fraudulent. Is like, so this, you know, is, this is like capturing the T-1000 and reprogramming it 
so that it actually well, fights yeah, for no, John Connor. Precise, no, but, but that's exactly, yeah. Yeah, that is. <laughs> As so, yeah. the movie, I haven't seen the new movie, of course, but that's that's precisely what happens. Mm. And, I, I, and I was thinking about this, particularly in the case of um, the Great Firewall of China. So the Great Firewall of China right now is using a lot of AI to try to predict words that should be censored, websites and IP addresses <coughs> that should be censored and blocked and so forth. And there's a new generation of tools that are actually using AI to predict what the Great Firewall of China's AI will censor. And if you've got that sort of cat and mouse game, you can start you can start beating it at its own and you can start getting through in, in a more efficient way because defeating the Great Firewall of China turns out right now is very labor intensive, just like censorship is very labor intensive. So as the Chinese censors want to move to AI, then the people who want to defeat Chinese censorship want to move to AI. And, and I sort of see... In this, in this future world, the same thing that we're having in the cybersecurity space, that we have a arms race um, as people develop new tools for bad and, and other people respond with developing new tools for good. Well, the interesting thing, and I'd, be, I'd like to get your views on this, is the, the thing it sort of comes down to to me, and this is what you're alluding to, I think, a bit, is who is actually writing the algorithms? Are they good people or not? And what I get worried about is I see it's the, the communists in China, it's the elites in Silicon Valley, it's, it's the transhumanists that are actually writing these algorithms um, that put us on a path. I see it as a path dependency thing. How do you get out of this path dependency? Now, I don't know whether I'm overtly apocalyptic, so, so but that does kind of worry me. Who are the people actually writing so these my, algorithms? So my claim is that um, it's a competitive market. Yeah, that's right. Um, so some bad people will write bad things, but good people can write good things too. The challenge is you want to make sure that there's no monopoly over um, algorithm design. Um, uh, and even in a country like China, there is no monopoly over algorithm design. And certainly we can develop tools that help um, uh, counter some of those negative uses. Yeah, I'm usually the pessimist in any conversation, so I'm surprised that I'm the optimist here. But you know, I think if there is a situation where only bad algorithms are being created, the market will speak. You know, there will be some bottom-up formation of good algorithms that compete. And I think Chris is spot on. That's the solution here. As long as there's competition, then we'll have choices amongst algorithms. We'll have competition amongst AI. Yeah, I think that's right. But the interesting thing is it's endogenous because it's the AI that shapes the preferences. So um, there was an example a couple of weeks ago of a story of Disney was going to be using AI to get rid of... Um, uh, certain you know, gender pronouns and things. So it's meant to be have all the politically correct words in the scripts. Now, I refer to it as automated Marxism because... They don't do have, that many scripts. You have, Surely this, they can. Um, you have this Marxist ideology of, of essentially cultural... <laughs> humans read them, right? <laughs> no, but it's, it's, humans will eventually have to read them. They wrote yeah, them. You can, you can try and joke your way out of it, but this is a serious point, right? It's basically taking Marxism and embedding it into automated structures that then feeds into people's values. Right, so it's, it's an endogenous. So it's an endogenous it's, thing. No, I take your point, but I, I would say that our response has to be to build libertarian algorithms that we embed into our own structures, and 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 you find it out in the marketplace of ideas, like Greg Data, which like, is like Greg Data, um, AI technology for freedom. Uh, what, what an extraordinary wraparound. Yeah, brought, brought, it, brought it right back home, uh, which means uh, you'll find links to uh, some of the papers that we've been discussing in the notes uh, for this podcast. Uh, we might even ask our, our wonderful Josh Stranger to overlay some of the charts, which uh, not surprisingly show red tape going up like that in Australia and actually going down like that more recently uh, in the USA and the beneficial impacts. We have reached that part of Looking Forward where we ask our panellists for their culture picks, what they've been uh, reading, writing or listening to. Who would like to lead us off? I'll, I'll have a go first. So I watched last night The Laundromat on Netflix. The Laundromat is um, a movie directed by Steven Soderbergh. It stars Meryl Streep, Gary Oldman and Antonio Banderas. And I, um, Antonio Banderas is actually really, really good in it. But it, what it is is it's a, um, it's a very disjointed and strange but kind of fun retelling of the Panama Papers scandal. If you recall, back in 2016, there was a release of documents by a Panamanian law firm, Mossack um, Fonseca, or Fonseca, I should say, um, uh, about basically the network, the large global network of trusts and shell companies that um, a lot of people 
a lot of wealthy people and a lot of businesses have used to minimise their tax obligations. At one stage, this company had about 5 to 10% of the global shell company market. It's a really fun film, as I said, but it's um, uh, really interesting because I've been interested in the issue of um, the moral panic over tax havens that we've had over the last um, uh, decade or so. Um, and the movie, uh, e even though it jumps between a um, large range of effectively just anecdotes, it does point out that some of the um, richest, best countries in the world are also, quote, tax havens. Um, it's not just the Cayman Islands, it's not just Panama, but Hong Kong and Singapore are sometimes described as, um, uh, as tax havens. Delaware in the United States is a, quote, tax haven. So the conclusion that you come to by the end of this movie, and it's not the conclusion the movie wants you to come to, is that what they're complaining about is not tax havens, but tax competition. Yes. The very idea <clears throat> that there, sh there could be some jurisdictions that are more business friendly at all. Um, uh, uh, Sinclair and I, Sinclair Davidson of RMIT and I have written quite a bit about this on the tax avoidance moral panic over the last decade and um, and uh, last week we were talking about the government's, the Morrison government's talking points. So I, I want to point out that the second agenda item on the Morrison government's um, agenda is ensuring multinationals pay their, pay their fair share of tax. But really all we're talking about with the Panama Papers scandal and these multinational tax, um, quote, scandals are optics. It just looks bad. It looks bad, but it doesn't actually um, reflect any serious problem with the global tax scheme other than it's com it's competitive it's um it's a market dynamic in a competitive environment if you want to keep taxes high well you you can do that but yeah. you're going to lose some of your potential tax income to better places in in language there's a real determination to break down the distinctions between you know tax evasion tax minimization and tax competition you know it's it you know that uh you go from a discussion about, well, is parking money in uh, temporarily usually in the Grand Cayman Islands, which is usually done for accounting reasons, actually to avoid double taxation, but, you know, arguably facilitates um, tax minimisation and reduces the tax base and all those things, as opposed to something like Hong Kong, which just has a low low tax rate. Yeah, or Singapore. And, and, it, and good luck to them. It, it used to be the case, um, about 20 years ago, it used to be the case that you could say... There's a difference between tax evasion, which is illegal, and tax avoidance, which is um, just you know lowering your tax, like we all you know try to write off various things on our tax return every year, perfectly legally, and in fact the government has set it up so that we can do that automatically. But these days, the Australian government certainly, and I believe other governments, have started to move into um, this idea that there is illegal tax avoidance, which is a deliberate blurring of that both moral and legal distinction. It is perfectly moral and perfectly right to avoid paying more tax than you legally have to. It is, you know, questionable to, to um, uh, illegally evade tax. But uh, anyway, so this is, this is actually, I'm, I, it's, a, it's a lefty, panicky movie about a moral panic around global taxation, but it's really quite fun. So I, <laughs> I do recommend it. Well, get, while watching it through that lens. Oh, sure. So I'm reading a book that is new to me but not new, which was published a few years ago called Why Australia Prospered by Ian McLean, who's a professor of economics at Adelaide Uni, which is where I studied and had the great uh, pleasure. He didn't teach me, but I had the great pleasure of meeting him on a few occasions. So very learned man about economic history, Australia's economic history. Uh, relevant to this discussion, talking about differences in Canada and America and what's happening around the world. Uh, a few interesting tidbits that might be new to some people, but what I got out of the book is Australia was extraordinarily rich uh, <laughs> by historical standards in the mid-1800s uh, to late-1800s, uh, partly the gold rush in 1850-1860, but actually even before that, from really the early 1800s, our growth rate really accelerated, and this is per capita, very rapidly from sort of 1800 through to sort of World War I. Um, we had a very fast per capita growth rate. Uh, wool was a big part, um, then gold. We had big immigration uh, that came with the economic prospects of uh, of, of those two 
fundamental commodities. Uh, we were the richest nation in the world in per capita terms in somewhere around 1860, 70, 80. Somewhere, it's, this is not really an exact science, but somewhere around then. I think Melbourne was the richest city in the world at around that time. Also at, at almost, like, almost up to the turn of the century. Almost yeah. up to the turn, in large part because of gold and a lot of the great buildings that you may have seen, Patrick, around were in part funded by that gold boom. So that lives on. Um, today, but the other point that Ian McLean, the, the other place is British Columbia. Funnily enough, is that right? Well, there you go. So that's a good point. Um, and they have uh, reg data now, so we should uh, do that. So, um, so the, the other rush. key point, though, that Ian McLean makes is, well, like, this isn't all just about luck. So there's been it's interesting timing because there was a report um, from it was it was I can't remember if it was IMF or OECD. I remember it got a run in the AFR about um, Australia is dumb but getting rich and we're dumb because we just have a resources base, right? And that somehow makes us dumb because that generates all our wealth. Now, apparently this guy hasn't heard of Ricardian you know, comparative advantage or anything. But the point is that, you know, yeah, you, lots of countries have resources, but they're not all rich. Why are some countries richer than others that have resources? Venezuela and a lot of that has is resources, yep. Venezuela, mm -hmm. but Argentina is an example mm -hmm. of a once great prosperous country that is now quite poor. Uh, and it's basically institutions. It's your institutions, your private property, rule of law, um, trust in a society, a market-based economy, um, all of these kind of fundamentals, I guess, back to what we're talking about, uh, business investment, you've got to have faith that your contract's going to be um, adhered to and so forth. So it's really a story about, yeah, we, we're lucky that we've got resources, um, even though we've done our best to kind of regulate our way out of you know that um, in some ways, but it's also really the importance of the institutions uh, that we have, and they are really the backbone of of our prospering economy. I'll tell you what. I, so I, it's a very good book, but I, I do have one problem with it, which is that it it tells this sort of just so story about Australian history that. Um, and the story that it's saying is that we made the right institutional decisions at the right time every time, because he's he ends up defending the um, he, he ended ends up defending a large portion of the Australian settlement by saying that you know when we went protectionists in the early part of the twentieth century that was precisely the right decision you know that was the right time to go protectionist. And then when we decided to go free trade, that was in the 1970s, 1980s, that was the right time to go free trade. And um, at, at, look, and he, and he makes his case for that and he makes the case well, but what it doesn't have is the um, the sort of public choice story that maybe in sometimes we had special interest capture that meant that we made the wrong decision and we could have been richer for longer. We could have been, um, uh, you know, we were the, Melbourne was the richest city in the world at the turn of the century. Why weren't we the richest city in the world at the mid 20th century? And, mm -hmm. Um, uh, and so I, I, he doesn't really navigate that, those questions very well to my yeah. mind. It's it's an efficient policy story in a funny way. Yeah. I think one of the things that appeals to me, though, is Australia always does muddle through somehow. We just manage to keep going even though – I mean, like, so we, we, we have wool, we have uh, gold, we have coal, and we've got like a third of the world's uranium supplies as well. So it's, we always have this way of just getting into a hole new and we find new things and we keep going and we manage 400,000 international students. At yeah, the well, is that's the latest. No, and, the, and the strong. But we always manage just to keep somehow keep going and, in, and, and stay and, going. And in that sense, the the point that it's not just that we keep going, we, we don't fall into a Venezuela or Argentina. No, we get ourselves out of it. Um, and it goes back yeah. to your institution story. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the innovation happens when government's <laughs> not looking, usually. <laughs> um, Patrick. So I recently reread uh, one of my favorite books by one of my favorite authors, Neil Stevenson, uh, the book Diamond Age. Have you guys read that by chance? I haven't. No. It's, uh, written back in 1995. Um, yeah, yeah, so this is before that, uh, 1995, and um, it's, it held up well. Uh, it's almost 25 years old, and this book talks about a future society where scarcity is different. There's still scarcity, but it's taken a different shape because... There's basically 3D printers, he doesn't call it that, but 3D printers on every street corner. And you can go out and print up your meal or print up a bed or whatever your basic needs are, they're met. Uh, and so the game changes for humans. Uh, competition still occurs, but it's on different margins. It's sort of on for being in different groups rather than for having more stuff. Um, and so it's a really interesting exploration of uh, what would the world be like in a world of not lack of scarcity, but different scarcity. Uh, but some other things that are in that book that are really intriguing, especially given when it was written, there's iPads, basically, uh, <laughs> that are how kids are starting to be 
educated, and a big part of the book is is revolving around this uh, uh, computer programmer, basically, who's designing an iPad that can be used as a sort of separate curriculum for this group of orphans, and it's interesting, but, you know, the iPad is clearly part of the vision, and then the other one that's really interesting, probably will catch your fancy, is... Uh, only spends maybe a page or so talking about it, but digital currencies are in there. <laughs> and uh, he kind of mentions the irrelevance of governments and explains why they're irrelevant. It's because digital currencies have been around for a while, and once those were invented and able to be exchanged uh, um, securely, then taxes were no longer a thing. And, Scott, I'm happy to talk about that for the next half an hour. Fair <laughs> currency discussion. Uh, that'll be a special episode of uh, Looking Forward, a special five-hour episode uh, <laughs> with Chris. By myself. Yeah, with about half of the people at the IPA. Uh, no, that, that, that sounds terrific. No, I didn't know Neil. Um, this, uh, Sinclair Davidson uh, comes on the podcast and uh, he has his sci-fi favourites that he, that he reels off as well. So um, one, one to look at there. Um, my book, uh, I thought in honour of uh, your visit, uh, Patrick is um, uh, by Tyler Cowan, your your boss. So you better say nice things about it. Um, <laughs> he's written some great books. Head of the Mercatus Centre, um, and you can listen to him on the Conversations with Tyler podcast, amongst many other things. This one's called uh, Big Business: A Love Letter to an American Antihero. And post GFC, uh, there's certainly a fair bit of piling on with uh, big business. Um, you may have heard some of it here on this podcast and you may have heard it from me. Uh, it has been a time when, because we are concerned about crony capitalism, uh, about uh, big state, um, the regulatory agenda being being captured, uh, whether it by big tech, um, you can't not worry about, I guess, the banking and finance uh, sector and whether it's actually adding value to the economy or just capturing value from the economy. And um, credit to Tyler Cowan, he's met all of these things head on. Each is a sort of a chapter by chapter sort of uh, addressing each of these things that you might um, be concerned about and then doing his very best to say, well, you needn't be so concerned. Uh, I'm not sure I'm completely convinced on all of them, but um, say, for instance, um, CEO salaries. Mm -hmm. um, so they're obviously... Uh, once you get to the um, you know the top hundred in the U.S. stock market, you know they're, they're moderately astronomical. I think the numbers he was quoting, the average was eighteen million dollars a year U.S. Um, for the top CEO salaries in the U.S. Well, that, and that was probably the median actually. Um, but he said, if you go back and you look at the changes in market value, the CEO's salary, as in comparison to the market value on the stock market of these firms, it's about the same. And he said, you can have some figures about what a CEO adds to um, uh, market value. And, and I have a real-world example that I've ripped oh, from wow. uh, the Australian Financial Review. You've done some research. And this actually proves Tyler Cowen's point, which I was reading only last night. So shares in – it says here, shares in Treasury wine estates, one of the market darlings, have fallen almost 9% in early trade after highly respected chief executive Michael Clark said he will retire in September next year. God, imagine if he said he was retiring today. Um, the point being that was a classic argument that Tyler Cowan had made, which is, yes, these CEOs are paid a lot and the market is valuing them as being worth a lot, mm. that they actually add values to these companies. So there's evidence that uh, if you believe in efficient markets, they're certainly valuing it. Um, it has all sorts of um, other examples, banking and finance, it's 2% of the US economy. It's always been 2% of the US economy. These, these kinds of things. One of the classic mistakes that people make in the public policy sphere is they look at something that a company does and they can't figure out why that company does it. Why are you paying so much money to your CEO? Um, and they assume that, that it must be for stupid reasons or it must mm. be a mistake or it must be because of corruption or so forth. And almost always there's a reason there's a reason that they are paid that much because it's a competitive market because it actually reflects underlying value and so forth. Yeah, and, and that um, occasionally a bad CEO will slip through but they tend not to last long and that's why turnover's high. There's also a dignity work story in there. He makes the point that, um, that you know, work is good. You know, there's all these books about, you know, about how our lives are being immiserated by our, our dreadful employers and it's like, well... Why then are all the social pathologies, suicide rates, obesity associated with unemployment? Mm. Like um, working is actually good for your health. 
and um, in terms of some of the s social dysfunction that's addressed in America uh, in the sort of the coming apart hillbilly allergy mode, he refers to these corporations as um, oases of stability. And um, uh, so as, as he calls it, it's a, it's a love letter to an American anti-hero. So the, it's not just dry economic statistics. There's actually sort of a rousing defence of the, the role that corporations can play in society. There's something interesting that's happening on the left at the moment. So in the, um, uh, in the world of the gig economy, right? So everybody, not everybody, but there's lots more people working on in Uber or Uber Eats or Deliveroo or what have you. And the left are really frustrated that they can't impose things like minimum wages on these gig economy workers. Um, and that's precisely because they no longer work for large corporations that you could target. So in, mm. on the left, we've sort of got this weird nostalgia for the time when you could have a patrician CEO that could work with the union movement yeah. to impose its own standards of what real work looked like. And now that we're moving away from that, that's there, there are some people pretty upset. They're a bit lost. They're a bit lost. Um, but we're not lost. You've been listening to uh, Looking Forward, which is one of the uh, numerous great podcasts from the – that wasn't really a segue. You are getting it? better and better. <laughs> <laughs> it was a segue until you said it was a segue. Yeah, I know. I just – I lost confidence. Was I, was, I was like, you know, walking you, with you – know, no, no net under, under me. out of admiration. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I should have rolled with this it. This is some first-class stuff. I should have rolled with it. Um, <laughs> if you're not already a member of the IPA, you can go to our website and join or donate. A big thank you to our panellists today, Dr Chris Berg. Thank you. Dr Patrick McLaughlin from the Mercator Centre. Thank you. And Daniel Wild, our Director of Research. Thanks, Scott. Uh, big thank you as always to our producer, Josh Stranger. We'll be back with more Looking Forward next week.